Welcome to the podcast of ideas. I'm Rob Lyons. I'm joined as ever by my colleagues Claire Fox and David Bowden to chew over the week's news. But we'll start with the Ferrari over Port Talbot and the closure of that plant by, or rather the selling of, the, of Tata's UK steel business and the likelihood that Port Talbot is going to be closed and the kind of reaction to that. So what do we think about that? When I was at school, um, Shot and Steelworks was the main employer which is in North Wales, but there's only a kind of rump of jobs there now in, owned by Tata. The closure of Shot and Steelworks probably changed my whole political outlook. I remember at the time the local Labour MP saying, we will never close the steelworks. Then they closed the steelworks, and I said I'd never vote Labour again. I was 15, so I'd never voted for them before, but I was a natural Labour voter. So I've taken an interest in steelworks over the years, and it's utterly tragic for those people whose livelihoods are dependent to lose their jobs. Of course, as individuals, that is true. But there is something of a unreality about the discussion about what this is, what is really going on here. If it costs Tata a million pounds a day to keep open the steelworks, it is not a profitable going concern. They've invested in it for nine years. They've done what they can to make it work, and it hasn't worked. You then get a range of scapegoats being used, partly them, the government. I'm sympathetic to the fact that the energy prices are so expensive because of the onerous green taxes, which I'm unsympathetic to, seem more political gesturing than of any great merit in terms of economic development. You can talk about Chinese um, steel and you can launch all sorts of trade wars and, and, and blame, you know, a different set of foreigners for the state of things. But what nobody talks about is that this is an industry which potentially is a zombie industry in the UK economic landscape. And there is not enough investment in creating new dynamic sectors. So I am unsympathetic to the argument that what the government should do is save this steelworks because of the jobs of those individuals. If they're going to invest as a government in economic development, I would want them to invest in dynamic new sectors that can create productive jobs and it seems to me that the steel business is problematic anywhere and British steel is not a profitable going concern so there's no point keeping it open for sentimental reasons or for the individual's jobs concerned. We can do something about those individuals hopefully retraining, I wouldn't, I'd give them some money but that's not the same as keeping the steelworks open just for those particular jobs. Yeah, it's really striking that also most of the people who are you know arguing for the for the nationalisation of it aren't really taking on some of the kind of bigger questions about actually sort of saying that we could improve the competitiveness. There's no real conviction that this is you know, a rough patch for British Steel that the government should try and support it through in the hope that it, things will pick up a little bit, which is a classic case for nationalisation. There's no clear argument that nationalisation would be better for the industry. It just really needs to, to go and be uh, recreated by something else. What is quite striking, actually, is um, that now all of the kind of hopes are really kind of pins to a kind of the super rich, a kind of super rich investor kind of coming in, repurposing um, this, the plant, making kinds of lots of promises about how he will maintain all of these jobs. And that, that actually, this is a kind of example of the kind of super rich being called to as the kind of, as the heroes of the piece. Actually, they will kind of come in, you know, Tata can't do it, the British government can't do it, you know, Mr Gupta uh, will come in and, and do it. And that sort of seems to be quite striking, particularly when you look at a lot of the other news that's going on, actually this sort of, this hope of a kind of wealthy individual who kind of step in and save the day. 
um, is quite striking. Yeah, I mean, the usual kind of criticisms we make about British industry is that nobody's invested in it. Uh, and that was certainly the case in the Brit- British steel industry in the late 60s and 70s, where there'd been a chronic lack of uh, investment for, for years. But Tata paid £6 billion for Chorus, which includes uh, various operations in uh, Holland as well as uh, the British steel industry. It invested £4 billion, apparently, in British st- steel industry since it bought it, and it's just been a money pit. Um, unfortunately, it bought it at a time when everybody thought steel demand was going to shoot up and you know, there was a great world market for it. And then the within a year, we'd had the financial crisis and uh, things went pear-shaped in the West. And now we have China slowing down as well, so that you know, the demand for steel is not there. And you know, countries like China and South Korea and Russia, to a lesser extent, are propping up their steel industries as they can for, for their their own political reasons, um, which means that they're yeah they're flogging steel on the world market as cheaply as they can, whatever price they can get for it. So that's yeah that is a major problem that you you, you can't sort of uh, magic away by some kind of government intervention. I just don't think it's there, and also that the, the fact that this uh, so Gupta's come in and and he says well we're making the wrong kind of steel or we're doing it in the wrong kind of way anyway. We shouldn't be making it from iron ore and coal, uh, which is what Port Talbot does, but we should be recycling scrap metal. I mean, in fact, that actually most of the steel now is recycled steel. So, in effect, you know, a, a policy of you know, promoting recycling and, and reuse of uh, materials has been successful in the sense that it's, it's put Port Talbot out of business. I think you're actually right to emphasise that Tata actually went in and they actually invested in developing the Port Talbot plant. I mean, they built, they didn't just take over an asset strip, you know, or anything like that. I mean, they really wanted this to work. It's it's a sort of, some think about politics that feels so naive when people sort of imply, well, why why can't they make it work? It's like, they want it to work. I mean, they're a big business. They have been incredibly important in relation to, for example, Jaguar Land Rover. They want profitable uh, businesses and why wouldn't they and so if they thought that there was any way of doing this they would be doing it it's not as though they were trying to do it on the cheap which is why I think Dave your point about nationalization uh, nationalizing the industry is so important because I'm largely neutral on nationalize or not but I have yet to hear a sensible argument for nationalizing the industry beyond a kind of virtue signaling around jobs and that's where I get very nervous because I think, well, people don't just... That's welfare, right? That's not an industry. That's not an industrial policy. And for people to have any kind of sense of long-term job prospects, investing or nationalising an industry that doesn't represent that would seem ridiculous. I, I loved your points about about uh, the super-rich and we'll maybe come on to that in a moment. But on Mr Gupta, I've also been hugely irritated watching the, some of the interviews that he's been conducting not with him, but with the the media, who's sort of basically saying, Mr Gupta, when are you going to sign and how many jobs are you going to set? There's no, Mr Gupta has an obligation to saving the jobs of 
people who work in Port Talbot. I mean, he says, I've only just looked at the figures and it's back of an envelope. Well, when will you know? When I think if that's the way the British media thinks that business should be conducted, we're doomed anyway. I mean, they don't understand it's a more serious business than that. He's not going to take over a zombie business. He's a serious businessman. He's under no obligation to do it other than that he thinks it will make him more money and make him even super, super rich. It can't be that you put pressure on him to do it for Britain. I mean, that's not the basis. But the step back has to be, do we really need this industry? Those people need jobs. They don't need steel jobs per se. It's not something they're born into. Well, and that's the thing. And also a lot of them are um, highly skilled, well-trained workers who probably are actually... You know, relatively lucrative on a global market. There is a global market for steel and surely could also perhaps be, be put to other industries. It's not as if this is a kind of siloed um, kind of job in many ways. And so it's kind of fascinating as well that there is just a sort of perception that these people are kind of helpless and actually without these, without the government essentially stepping in for a hugely expensive welfare programme, there is no other option. I mean, that's we're presented with nothing else. And in fact, it's you kind of feel as if maybe actually there are, there are greater possibilities and kind of opportunities here that should be on the table that aren't being discussed. Yeah, I mean, it's the, it's the latest example of kind of a helpless kitten syndrome, which is where suddenly everybody alights on a particular section of workers and says, we've got to save them, and they are treated as the sorry victims of things. Um, um, so, you know, la- last year it was like dairy farmers. It's like, you know, we've got to do everything. We should be paying more, f- even though that's completely against what consumers are actually going to want to do. They're not going to want to pay more for their milk. And, th- and this time it's like, we should impose tariffs. So we should make steel more expensive for everybody else in the country that uses steel, rather just to save, <coughs> even the possibility of saving. Even tariffs on their own probably wouldn't be enough in relation to Port Talbot. And that's this idea that nationalisation is this sort of, you know, panacea. I was looking at the figures uh, last night. When British Steel was brought into existence by by nationalising a whole bunch of companies in 1967, 268,000 people worked in the steel industry. By 1980, it was down to 130,000. And, you know, Margaret Thatcher's Conservative government was responsible for a small part of that. But basically, even with Labour government in power that was trying to save jobs and putting up with an awful lot of losses for a nationalised industry, it's still the case that an awful lot of plants closed. And, and yeah, the steel industry in the UK has been bleeding jobs ever since. There was 6,000 lost in 2001, I was just reading here. So it's, you know, this is an industry that for, for, for various global reasons, you know, the, the production has shifted massively away from uh, the UK to other parts of the world. And, you know, just trying to prop it up, as, you, as Claire says, you know, as a, as a zombie industry, it's just a really, really daft way of using precious resources when we need to be looking at new industries or promoting existing industries that at least have a viable future. Yes, I, I mean, I haven't got much more to say, but I think that your point about, you see, one of the things that's really weird, isn't it, which is, you know, we should save the steel industry at all costs so that we make steel really expensive for other British industries that need steel. I mean, that'll work well. Do the consumers who have to then take on those costs, for example, at some point want that? No. So that's what I'm saying is it feels like an air of immaturity about it. And I think that that maybe in the sort of discussion now about the super rich that that we should sort of start talking about, the, the thing that really just strikes me is if this discussion was being had in a 
GCSE economics class, the teacher would be saying, come on, get real and grow up and we've got to look at this seriously. And I find it frustrating that you're not allowed to say this without you being seen as, to the right of Genghis Khan, he wants steel workers to suffer. And that's the way it's posed, you know, you don't care about the workers. And if politics is conducted at that level, it just feels that Britain can never become a mature economic dynamic uh, country again because you can't actually have an open and frank discussion about what you need to do without somebody, uh, you know, uh, virtue signalling, but in, a, in quite a damning way, in, in a way that shuts you up. Well, since we're on the subject of the super rich, the, the perhaps the even bigger story of the week has been the Panama Papers. So this is a firm in Panama that has uh, basically... Um, enabled many many rich people uh, or groups of people to through various tax avoidance schemes and hiding uh, beneficiary uh, beneficial ownership um, enabled uh, an awful lot of people with an awful lot of money to kind of hide their movements hide the, the what they're doing with that money so, what do we think about that? I mean, because it, it seems kind of almost kind of schizophrenic. To, on one hand, you have you know. Gupta as the saviour, and then the next breath, you know, you know, everybody under the sun is involved in this uh, Panama operation. Yeah, well, what's really striking about it is that people are still trying to really put the finger on what has what the crime is here. Actually, you know, because it, actually, it's a, it's a little bit tax avoidance isn't really a, a crime. You can sort of have a moral position um, on it. Perhaps it's obviously not that much of a of a big secret that you know, tax havens exist and are generally you know used and kind of consciously manipulated around national governments as all taxation systems um, are. You know, so at the moment the kind of sort of leaks have been that you know Cameron's dad may be up to some not proper business practices in in moral terms, but not clearly in legal terms as far as we can tell. That you know that Putin gets up to perhaps some dodgy dealings, um, which is not necessarily the revelation of the of the century. Um, and, you know, the Icelandic Prime Minister... Um, actually, I mean, actually, when you look at even what he's done, it's, it's very small scale, and it's only within uh, somewhere like Iceland that has a very particular attitude towards its financial sort of services and has a population smaller than Hackney that, you know, that there is this kind of sort of sense of outrage. It's, it's much more kind of local level. What's interesting about the taxation issue more generally is that, you know, I, I am a bit uncomfortable about the about the kind of offshoring, you know, that actually a taxation rate for countries is is a fundamental aspect of democracies and accountability. That, you know, people if people are benefiting from um, doing business in your country, then there is a political discussion to have about the, the taxation rates that they pay. So to have a kind of a sort of two way system where they can sort of not really sort of pay rates but they do it in a way that benefits people. Uh, you know, is, it does make me a little bit uncomfortable. But then the issue is actually when you look at what people are calling for to try and improve the regulation taxation systems are larger and more powerful supranational organisations. And the history of larger and more powerful supranational organisations is not generally pro-democracy. That generally does not lend more accountability to a, uh, the people or the citizens in this case. So it's kind of really striking that people are kind of desperate for a scandal to be here, but they haven't really been able to locate... And what it is, other than targeting the problem of the fact that there are a lot of people out there making a lot of money who aren't paying as much tax as people feel they should be. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a number of uh, really interesting things that are revealed by this discussion. And, you know, the, the shocker from the locker is not that rich people want to keep their money. 
and not give it away. Really interesting things are some of the solutions. So I think it's like being hilarious that the big radical demands in relation to some of the offshoring places which are related to Britain, a sort of outpost of British imperialism of the past, you'll get radical politicians going on saying, we should tell them now what to do and stop them doing it and do this. So (laughs) British colonialism unembarrassed when it comes to tax issues you know we should make them change that law they should tell them what they i mean you couldn't make it up i mean you're listening to them and they're like talking about these places like outposts that we own and it's a disgrace that britain is associated with these places who are doing these things and we should tell them how to behave in 2016 do you think yes so that's been hilarious watching that unfold i think that the other aspects of the outrage that are you know annoying are that Last night um, on Newsnight, Polly Toynbee was expressing what a lot of people are saying, which is people should not have secret or one might say private uh, financial uh, transactions going on and that there should be a law that everyone makes public all of their financial transactions. And she, this is being argued seriously by the left, whatever that means. And there was a sort of, would you pin your tax returns on your front door, Polly? Yes, I will if you will. People then saying that everyone should be able to, what have you got to hide? Well, you know, I've got, I don't want my financial transactions made public. It might be that I don't want people to know how little I earn rather than how much, but that doesn't, it's got none of your business, to be frank. Um, There is an element to which we all choose um, to disclose what we want to disclose. This tyranny that in the midst of the sort of rich bashing that you then say every transaction should be uh, in the open seems to me to be completely wrong. So so this sort of idea of kind of secrecy and privacy, uh, privacy being thrown to the wolves when it comes to the rich that then has a rippling implication on actually undermining privacy seems to me to be wrong. Um, I, and then, but, but, uh, but to lead it back to the previous conversation, what I think we should seriously note is that there is a problem that the super rich are not investing. If you want that, if there's a political point here, the worrying bit is not that they're being immoral, but why they don't attempt to use that capital more productively so they can make more money. I mean, I'm not trying to take the money away from them, but that actually there is an excess of capital not being invested in the world. And um, you know, it's not like I think you should be giving that to the hospitals or the poor or whatever. I'm not trying to make a moral point. I'm saying we know that there's a, a risk aversion in the capitalist class, a tendency to avoid taking risky long term investment decisions that seems a shame to me. And I think that offshoring and and worrying about what you do with your excess capital has developed much more explicitly in a period of, you know, real nervousness and downright scaredy catness <laughs> that's not weird is it a lack of daring do in the capitalist class internationally i'd be much more concerned about that than whether they're making money out of it and trying to avoid paying tax but why aren't they being more you know gung-ho in terms of trying to make profits that's what we should be asking the super rich yeah there was a good example of that this week when pfizer pulled out of a takeover deal which seemed to be at least in part uh, based on the idea that they could move some of their operations to Ireland and therefore avoid US tax. and But the bigger question is, why are individuals and companies going to such great lengths to avoid tax? 
I think your point about capital is very, very important. They're sitting on capital, therefore they're not using it, and therefore they're wondering what they they can do with it. But also, this should, I think, draw attention to the fact that you know why is it that you know Ireland is so successful because it has lower tax rates? You know, should we be having a discussion about lower tax rates rather than just simply moralising it and saying? You know, the rich have to pay their fair share. It's it's that kind of discussion that it's just maddening. Obviously, there are things revealed in the Panama Papers which are wrong, but it's not that Gaddafi or Assad has have been you know trying to avoid tax. It's the fact that they have been robbing their people's blind. That's the real you know moral concern here, I think. And I, and as you say, you know, some of the some of the claims being made or suggestions about how to deal with it, you know, sound more like kind of gunboat diplomacy by tax inspectors rather than um, you know, a sen- sensible solution to these problems. I also think, by the way, that the Cameron father story has been particularly distasteful. I mean, I've no interest in him, but I do think, um, I, th- I actually think that Brendan O'Neill makes this point, actually, in his article on Spiked on this question, but it has dawned on me as well that, you know, when Ed Miliband's father was was kind of absolutely trounced and traduced in the, in the mail... People were rightly outraged, you know, you can't go around, you know, trying to kind of smear a politician through family connections and all of these things. But apparently it's all right to do that with David Cameron and his father. I mean, I'm not interested in David Cameron's father. And I I just think that some aspects of this show a very limited imagination when it comes to what politics is all about. And when I was talking about an immaturity, I think that's the problem I have with this morality and tax question. I'm perfectly happy for there to be a grown-up discussion about tax reform. As it happens, I might argue that we should lower taxes or have flat taxes. I think there's some interesting things that you could do in relation to taxes that are not just about making it that the rich pay 80% tax. I think you get more money in from the state even by just reorganising your tax arrangements. I want that kind of open and frank discussion potentially, not just on tax also on investments, also encouraging how you how you uh, encourage people with a lot of wealth to both invest in industry, but, you know, to be philanthropic, I'm fine with that. You know, you would want to say to them, we'll make your, you know, we'll make it as lucrative for you to give it to the Tate Modern, um, the Institute of Ideas, as, as, <laughs> as, as to, you know, to, to park it offshore. You know what I mean? We'll give you tax break. I mean, I like all that sort of stuff. But you can't have a mature discussion about this if everyone's going to kind of leap on you and say, apologies for the rich. Are you saying that we should, you know, I mean, and I also think as well, just in terms of whose um, livelihoods we care about, uh, somebody was on the radio the other day pointing out that if the uh, proposals that were being put forward went through, that the livelihoods of peoples uh, in far-off lands would be destroyed. There would be no jobs in a number of places, right, Um, which might be where they have uh, certain tax breaks uh, uh, and so on. Hundreds, you know, tens of thousands of people will lose their jobs, but apparently they don't count. We're all meant to care about those people in, 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 in still works that count, but we're perfectly happy to destroy what is an industry that is legal at the moment, even if we find it a bit morally dubious. Talking of David Cameron, the, the, the big story that's broken in the last 24 hours or so has been the latest um, on the EU referendum debate. So the government has decided that it's going to send out a pamphlet 
um, telling us the facts about the the EU referendum because apparently there's been this enormous demand from people. Now people are demanding facts, but they don't necessarily want them delivered through the door at the cost of nine and a half million pounds by the government on government headed paper. But they want so so. What do we think about this? Is it, I mean, this seems. I mean, I know this, there is some historical precedent for it, but nonetheless, it seems a bit outrageous when you're supposed to be having a balanced campaign to have. The, the government sending out the official line on things to every household at considerable expense. Yeah, uh, for me, the big thing is is that what's there is no, it's not supposed to be an official line, right? I mean, they, 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 there is a cabinet, you know, there is the government say this is our line, but they really are, I think, making a mockery of the notion of we are giving a democratic right to the peoples to make a decision. I think it's an act of desperation, by the way, a really big act of desperation on their part that, to try and kind of influence things. I don't want to get overly excited by it. I think it's funny in as much I know nine and a half million is not much in the scale of economic things but I was you know you're really tempted to now go and be the kind of immature person that everyone else is and say I want to go and donate the nine and a half million to the Port Talbot Steelworkers campaign rather than waste it on this right just just to annoy people because it's just annoying I think it's interesting though that the kind of people who might say that in other circumstances won't say it because they basically are desperate to stay in the EU. So that, that makes it, it seem to me ironic. Just on the whole EU debate, though, there is a feeling that people need the facts. But I would just like to point out that that isn't what is lacking in this campaign either. It's analysis. And I think that, you know, you can know facts, but it's how you interpret them. And I think that ultimately they are taking facts and interpreting them in a particular way. And I think they should at least be honest enough to say this is a propaganda exercise to influence you. In which case, fair enough, then I'd say. But to try and pretend that they're doing a kind of objective, evidence-based intervention is particularly, you know, see-through but unworthy and democratically dubious. Yeah, it's also, it fits into a pattern around a... um referendums as well which is really striking again when people always love to make the arguments that you know the European Union is unpopular because it's 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 so it's too complicated to explain and things it's up against all of these big bad media barons and all of these big bad Eurosceptics is that in pretty much every referendum campaign national governments supports membership of the European Union actually that often backfires on them but there is an enormous powerful backing that the European Union is able to have in these discussions which is often both their own enormous media budgets and their own powerful institutions because they are enormously powerful institution and national governments on their side so the fact that they fail to make people buy into the the concept is not necessarily because it's it's political interference in the in the system um, it's politics that people actually are not completely convinced by what the European Union does and it's never really built a mandate for itself and therefore it can't quite handle um, any of these democratic engagements and it doesn't know how to, it tries to step back itself and let the kind of governments do the work it's been really striking how um, controlling uh, number 10 have been throughout this whole process actually, if you sort of recall that this was you know, when we used to kind of talk about the kind of new Labour kind of command and control days where everything was number 10 clamping down on this. And that's what the Tories are doing here. And actually, obviously, for the people on the left to kind of note that, yes, the big bad Tories, the Eurosceptics, the ones who want to take us out of Europe and send us back to the 1950s, who are isolationists who will do want to do that so they can strip all workers of the rights. They are the ones who are 
actively promoting this who are you know using essentially state funded propaganda to support it and you know you also then look at the likes of Lord O'Donnell you know formerly of the civil service who was a very activist civil service the politicization of the the civil service in recent decades has also been a big problem because again they are people who are supposed to serve the the people the the elected governments increasingly they view themselves as a political body apart who are supposed to engage them um, engage you know whatever the, the choice of those things and yet they feel that they can override that when the wrong decisions are made and so there's a you know, really telling portrait of the state of 21st century democracy um, which the European Union un- actively serves to undermine rather than bolster the leaflet is annoying but as as you say I mean it could quite easily backfire on them um, because the underpinning this whole discussion is obviously a real cynicism about the political elite. So for the for the government to to pin its uh, yeah, colours to the mass so uh, clearly could could quite easily backfire on them. But actually, the thing that's really annoying me more is the kind of the the sort of constituency building around this. So two in particular. One is uh, the fact that all the green groups have by and large, are very, very pro-EU, obviously because they, the EU is uh, disconnected from accountability, is much uh, more capable of pr- promoting the green agenda, which has never been a widely popular agenda. And the other one is the science stuff. So there's latest campaign, uh, well, latest advert on Facebook about uh, British scientists for Europe or something like that, which says only 15% of scientists want to leave the EU. And obviously, a- asking a scientist, you know, raising their head from the from the, the lab table for a moment and saying, are you pro-EU? Well, hold on a second, I get research money from the EU. I collaborate with people across Europe. Yes, I guess I am pro-EU. As if, you know, we're going to build a wall across the channel, like Donald Trump's war with Mexico, and say we're not going to like talk to people from Europe anymore, and we're not going to get involved in joint research funding or any of that. I mean, of course, that's one of the bits of, the, of, of European cooperation we definitely want to uh, continue. I've not heard a single person from the Leave campaign say we should uh, we should have British-only science. It's interesting, isn't it? Because there's another one today, which is, um, I can't remember what the hashtag is, but it's basically medical science now. Med- me- people in medicine have got, a guess what, a letter in the Times or whatever saying, you know, if we leave the EU, the whole of medicine will collapse um, and, and so on and so forth. And we've done. And it was interesting because on Twitter, somebody says, you wouldn't want to argue with this formidable bunch, right? It was also very funny that the people who were pushing this this morning with the people who yesterday were also pushing a story about uh, young doctors who are fleeing the UK to work in New Zealand, which did make me laugh because, you know, junior doctors, you can't make a living as they're all going off to New Zealand. I thought, which is it again? What are we, you know, is that in the EU? What happened there? Um, but, you know, I can't, I can't stand that either. But it just on the... Because what I think is, is that it, it creates a false sense of democracy and it kind of tries to take the... The mantle of, you know, we represent everybody who works in medicine or we represent all of education or we represent all of science. And we say, as the experts, that you would be fools, you hoi polloi, to to leave, right? Which is the, how could you argue with this lot? They're obviously an impressive bunch. I thought it was fascinating in relation to the referendum in Holland yesterday, which actually voted no. And what was really fascinating about that was that in order to it's not it was not a straightforward yes no to the EU but it was which the technical details of which are neither here nor there it was largely seen as if you voted no you were giving a bloody nose to the EU the people who wanted a yes vote basically tried to 
demobilise the population because in order to win the vote, you needed to get more than 30% to vote. So apparently, according to some media things, the, the yes voters were, were not encouraging anyone to vote because they were hoping that it would not reach the 30% mark. In other words, they were doing anything to get the vote they wanted, and I'm delighted that they failed, absolutely. I think it's therefore despicable when people say in the yes campaign here, we're going to mobilise young people because apparently young people will vote yes. And therefore, we need to mobilise them more than anyone else. In other words, just a stage army. Not interested in winning them over, convincing them. No arguments about that. Those of you who work with young people have an obligation to get them to the ballot box to vote yes. Not to win them, not to convince them. And that seems to me to be some of the more unsavoury, anti-democratic trends in this whole referendum campaign. Uh, right, well, we've covered a lot of ground uh, in, in our little chat today. Um, thank you very much, Claire and David. If you'd uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, you'd like to hear more of them, go to instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast, where you'll see, find more of them to, to listen to, or you can subscribe to our podcast feed. Thank you very much. Thank you.